Success lies not in being strong, but in the right use of strength. And strength is not used rightly when it serves only to carry a man above his fellows for his own solitary glory. He is the greatest whose strength carries up the most hearts by the attraction of his own. That is by Henry Ward Beecher. I remember being floored when I heard that quote for the first time, and it's not like I am this marvelous history buff. My wife was actually reading a children's book to the children, and I heard it, and I was floored. I'm a relatively young leader, as I'm sure many of you guys are still learning, right? We make mistakes. We try and grow. So when I heard that quote about leadership, because I need to be led in leadership, well, it stopped me in my tracks. He is the greatest whose strength carries up the most hearts by the attraction of his own. It captures so much about leadership. It addresses many a leader's desires, right? Greatness. It also offers a corrective, right? Don't aim for glory in your use of strength, but use strength to serve other people. And then it holds before us the right picture of what great leadership really is. Strength of character, integrity, and humility. As a Christian, I can appreciate all sorts of quotes, whether they be by Christians or non-Christians, when they reflect something that is in divine truth. Character, integrity, humility. He is the greatest whose strength carries up the most hearts by the attraction of our own. If only we ourselves, and in fact everybody on the planet, understood leadership like this. Whether we look at the news reports on presidents or look at ourselves, right? We see all sorts of people who seem to need leadership because so many lead for our own solitary glory at times. It's a well-known fact that we all today need to be led. In a major way, this is the very story of the Bible. It's about God sending us a leader, Christ the King, because we could not lead ourselves. We couldn't deliver ourselves. And our passage this morning found in 1 Samuel chapters 13 to 15 brings man's neediness right to the fore as we see exactly what happens when we insist on leading ourselves. We see the perils of self-rule, the perils of self-rule. That's like the main idea and, in fact, the title of the sermon. And then as Christians, we can once again be thankful for the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, our great leader and, in fact, Savior. If you haven't turned there already, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13, which is found on page 234 there in the Black Bibles in front of you. We are back in 1 Samuel, and we're picking up right where we left off now that we have finished the entire book of Romans. We're sort of jumping right back off where we left in uh, 2017, I believe. And originally, what we have as 1 and 2 Samuel, it was known actually to be one book, but then over time it came to be known as 1 and then 2 Samuel just because of length. But in terms of subject matter, 1 and 2 Samuel deals with the rise of Israel as a monarchy. It deals with the rise of Israel as a monarchy that is a nation being led now by an earthly king, a people ruled by a king. And the big structure of the book is pretty similar. It's uh, pretty simple. It starts first with Samuel, right? That's 
the person that the book is named after, Samuel, the prophet of God. And then it moves to the, the, the rise and then also the very quick fall of Saul. That's the second character. And then the third character is uh, King David and his rule, his reign. And if you know, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know there are so many famous stories in First and Second Samuel. You take First Samuel, which we looked at, you know, a while ago in First Samuel chapter one. You see there, you have barrenness, the barrenness of Hannah. But yet, in this midst of a difficult situation, the Lord is bringing out the bringing up the prophet of God, Samuel, to help steer the nation. You have, take for example, David and Goliath, which we're going to come to in a couple weeks, where the little man David defeats Goliath the giant. And then you have the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel where God promises that uh, one from David's line would sit on David's throne forever. In these books, we have lots of drama. We got suffering, barrenness, family infighting. And then today, in today's passage, we see the decline of Israel's first king, King Saul. Now, already, if you are tempted to disconnect, which maybe some of you guys might be, you know, this is considered to be amongst the history writings, the historical writings. Uh, but no, if you are tempted to disconnect, know that this involves you, Christian. This involves you. The very throne that we talk about today is your Christ's throne. You understand that? He was the one, Jesus was the one who was promised to sit on the throne of David forever to rule all of God's people. He is the one who would rule and reign like no other and rule and reign as only he can in perfect righteousness as righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So whether we are looking at the blunders or the successes of Israel's earthly kings, we should always end up casting our eyes at Jesus Christ. When we see the blunders of the king, we think, oh, when will the king, the perfect king, come to rule and reign? And where we see the occasional good king in the Old Testament we are to think, well, that's great for that earthly period of time, but when will we know this rule forever? And so we look again to see Christ and hope in his reign that is eternal. So today we're back looking at the beginning of earthly kingship in Israel with all of its fits and starts. Unfortunately, it is sin that leads God's people to ask for a king. We see that clearly in chapters 8 to 12. You don't have to turn there, but there the people had in fact, rejected God as king over them. And in pushing away God, they insisted on having an earthly king like all the other nations, the Bible says. Right? So they get rid of God as king, really out of fear, fear about all the other nations around them. And so God, he just kind of gives them over to their own desires, and God gives them Saul. Chapter 12 is clear. After the people install Saul as king, Samuel, the prophet of God, remain, reminds them. Just actually go ahead and look over there at chapter 12. Saul is installed as king. Look there at 12, 14. And he's like, okay, like you guys want, you guys want this. All right, God is going to give this to you. But let me just remind you there, 14, 12, 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord... And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Skip down to 24. He says there, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great, what great things he has done for you. 
But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Given it was his people's sin that led the people to ask for this earthly king, right? you can't help but wonder right there at the end of that verse, you can't help but wonder as you bite your nails, what kind of king will this Saul be? And to spoil it for you, Saul is a disobedient king. His reign ends horribly, absolutely horribly. He's jeopardizing the people that he's supposed to lead. It ends up with God rejecting him as king. And then later on, we see him trying to kill his very own son along with his successor, David. And so as we look at Saul this very morning, we are to learn about the perils or the dangers of self-rule. The perils of self-rule. Peril number one, if you're taking notes here. Without the wisdom of God, you are left relying on your own wisdom. Without the wisdom of God, we all are left relying on our own wisdom. As we enter into chapter 13, it's important to remember that it is expected of Saul that he would obey the voice of the Lord, right? That's what we just read. He's supposed to lead the people to do the exact same. He was to lead the people to safety spiritually as well as physically. And that's exactly where chapter 12 leaves off. That's chapter 13 opens, right? You have the perfect setting for us to see, is this Saul? How how is he going to start off his foot in some ways, just continuing to establish himself as we've Right in the past, you know, he goes about different battles and verse 13, I mean, chapter 13, here you have another setting. Yet again, the perfect setting, especially after the words of chapter 12. Will he really trust in the words of the Lord and obey? Will he keep the Israelites safe and lead them to honor God? In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13, just go ahead and skim there. He sets up his armies, right? That's a good thing. Because God had told him that he was going to drive out the Philistines. So here Saul is setting up his armies, 2,000 armies. 2,000 soldiers under me, 1,000 under my son, Jonathan. But as the chapter goes, it seems that setting up armies is about all that he does. It's about all that he does. Look there, right? The way it reads, it's almost as if the author dispenses with Saul relatively quickly to state the fact that it's his son, Jonathan. Look there in verse 3. That defeated the garrison of the Philistines. There's something just not quite right here. The man who's supposed to lead all Israel all of a sudden is given the background and Jonathan, his son, defeats the garrison of the Philistines. As the the account unfolds, the Philistines, well, they retaliate. Look there in five to seven. The Philistines, they come back with a thunder, right, with a significant amount of soldiers to make war. And the emphasis on numbers is we're supposed to be frightened by these things, right, if we imagine that we're right there in his shoes. And then there in verse 6, you see there, verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves. They're so afraid, they start hiding in caves and holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Israel's freaking out. And in fact, there, it says at the end of 7, right, the people following Saul were trembling. It's in these events that Saul's character flaws really come out. In such situations where God's people were outnumbered, right, the godly men in the past, think about Joshua, right, in, in Numbers, where he's supposed to take the land, right, and then the spies are sent out there, just Joshua and Caleb, right, they're ready to go in, they're trusting in the Lord. And then you can think, too, about in the book of Joshua, when Joshua actually leads the people into the promised land, right? He trusts in the word of the Lord, who said, be strong and courageous, 
Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The godly leaders of the past, well, they trusted in the promises of God, that God was with them wherever they went. He was going to bring about his will. He promised the land. They were going to take it because that's according to God's promise. That their hope is as strong as the character of God and his promises. You get that? They would evidence their trust in the Lord by, we're talking about people, men of the past, the godly men and women of the past. They would seek wisdom in God's word through the prophets. They would pray, seeking divine counsel. They would rely upon God and worship him through sacrifice. They would consecrate themselves to God once again. But this is not what Saul does. Samuel, the prophet of God, had told Saul to wait for the appointed time. Just wait. Seven days, if you look there in verse 8. Seven days, most likely from the start of fighting. And then Samuel's saying, I'm going to come. I'm going to speak the word of the Lord. That's assumed as the prophet of God who speaks on behalf of God. And then we're going to offer sacrifices, seek the Lord's will, consecrate ourselves. Well, friends, into the seventh day, Saul is panicking. You look there in verse 8. What's his concern? Well, Samuel, where's Samuel? Not only that, though, but his soldiers are scattering from him, right? They're going and hiding in holes because there are thousands of Philistines all around me. So what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. Before Samuel gets there, Saul offers sacrifices by himself, not waiting to hear from the prophet of God as he was told to do. And we know that it was fear that drove him to disregard the commands of the prophet of God. Uh, we so, look there again at 11. This is, in, this is right here. We see fear. Samuel said, what have you done? And look how Saul responds once again. You see his concern. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, his own soldiers, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines all around me had mustered at Mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You see a picture of Saul's true character. It's, it's funny, you know, it's like if you go look up at the first battle reported in 13, you know, we know that there in verse 3, Jonathan defeats the garrison. And then, and then Saul enters into the scene. Saul blows the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said, Saul has defeated the garrison of the Philistines. It's like he comes in all bull, blowing his horn. But then the next second, he's fearing so much that he's disregarding the word of God, the word of God that comes from Samuel. He's proud one second and gives into fear the next. You see that, that he thinks, I think, that his success and the people's success and prosperity and their hope is really dependent upon how strong the Philistines are. Not, how, not on how strong God is but on how strong the Philistines are and how strong he might be. Even though he thought it was wise to go ahead, look at what the prophet of God says in verse 13. You see what Samuel says? He says, you have done foolishly. That is, he lacks the wisdom of God. It's not that he lacks information. It's that he lacks the wisdom of God. You've done foolishly. Why is it? You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. And you see the result for the king who doesn't follow the, the, the Lord's rule and reign, he says, for the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. 
but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You see his issue there. He rejects the word of the Lord and takes matters into his own hands. He relies on his own wisdom. And you look at the resolution, which is supposed to be really bad there in 15. What does the prophet of God do? The prophet of God who brings God's word to his people to lead them. Well, he ups and leaves. And Saul arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Friends, we too do the same, don't we? We know God has told us something, but in fact, but in facing a situation, right, your, your circumstance, our circumstances, we fear, we panic. And in, in, depending how desperate we really are, we discard the word of God and take matters into our own hands, relying on our own wisdom and rejecting God's. What situation, friends, brings out fear in you? you lonely? And even though you know that God says you are not to marry those who reject him, that is non-Christians, you happily enter into relationships with non-Christians because you fear loneliness. Maybe you idolize relationships. Maybe you so prize significance and you think that's going to be found in having a boyfriend or a wife or a husband. Maybe you're not lonely. Maybe you're desperate financially. Maybe you fear being poor or what you grew up with or what you did not grow up with. Maybe you fear not having something as simple as the dream kitchen you want or not being able to provide for all of the activities that your children think they need. And so you flirt with the idea of cheating or lying at at your business, taking more money than you ought to. Or maybe you fear just simply losing control Because you are not God, you think you're God, and so you want control. Maybe you fear losing control of whatever situation you're in. Family situation is going south. Your health, too, is going south. And so you become more and more controlling, more consumed with dictating and less and less concerned with entrusting to the one who is sovereign. There's so many different circumstances. I'm sure you guys know these circumstances where we choose to go with what seems more expedient, more Uh, convenient and beneficial to us and our idols even though it is not honoring to the lord is that you christian this in fact is like the nature of sin isn't it discard the word of god because we want this thing god's word's not important so i'm going to take matters into my own hands come up with my own law live for my own pleasure and live for my own glory are you taking matters into your own hands Are you dissatisfied with the Lord's timing and we go our own way? Isn't it fascinating? Look, even though he says that Samuel didn't come in in this specific time, it's right as he offers the sacrifice that Samuel, in fact, does come. It's hard sometimes waiting on the timing of the Lord to bring about the things that we want because we know that sometimes we want some very ungodly things or even the godly things that we may want. It might not be the Lord's timing for us, and so we take matters into our own hands. Here's how I think you can know if you are relying on your own wisdom. Three things that help us know if you are relying on your own wisdom. Number one, 
not seeking God's wisdom, not seeking God's word and wisdom. If you are no longer asking, what does my father in heaven have to say about this thing that I want or this thing that I feel like I need? Chances are you don't think God's wisdom is very wise, right? Doesn't that make sense? Second thing, not praying. You're not seeking God's wisdom and will through prayer and praying his word. You, you don't pray that God would take his wisdom here in the Bible and put it in your heart so that you would believe in it, right? You're not praying, Lord, help me to understand this better in light of my own desires. Help me understand it. Help it, help it be true in my life and help me hope in your word and in your will so that I delight in you and in you alone. Third thing, not seeking counsel from a church member and your pastors. Not seeking counsel from fellow church members and your pastors. In my years as a pastor, I've had a number of church members come up to me and simply announce, I've decided to blank. Quit my job or take this job. Move to this city or move to that city or date this girl or date that guy. Go to this school or go to that school. And many times, right, I can speak for the four pastors here, many times we wish that these folks would have come asking us for advice on how to think about these things. It's not that you guys would necessarily make wrong decisions or people in the past who have, who have uh, come to me at different churches and done the same, just simply announce something. But we think like, oh man, if only they would ask us for help in how to think about these situations and move forward. Such a pattern of simply announcing that decisions have been made, it can reveal that that individual thinks that they are the sum of all wisdom. And this, yeah, I'm sure you guys understand what this is like. This doesn't only have to do with church situations. Just think about the people that you love. You know, If you're simply making a decision and it has an impact on other people and you're not asking them for wisdom, the same thing happens. It can reveal that that individual thinks that they are the sum of wisdom. Proverbs 11:14 says, where there is no guidance, a people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So friends, if you're acting as if you are the sum of all wisdom, then you definitely have taken matters into your own hands. If you want to talk to me more specifically about these ways in which you can know if you are seeking godly wisdom or not, feel free and talk to me. I can offer you Bible passages, these Proverbs to be thinking about so that we can gather around us counselors who can speak the word of god and not be like saul who's rejecting the word of god as we all know when we act according to our wisdom not trusting in gods we often end up in a worse situation than we started right this happens to saul this happens to saul this brings us to peril number two peril number two this worst situation, let me just set the scene, actually back up. Um, this worst situation there, um, what happens is that even though he's fearful, right? You see there, just, just go ahead and scan there, 15 to 17. You see there that the Philistines have moved even in a more dominant position. They're really surrounding them. So, right, you assume that he's really struck with fear here. And then in 19 to 23, they have no weapons. The Israelites have no weapons and the Philistines are, have surrounded them. And it seems by all, by all accounts that they're just going to get squashed. What will Saul do? Will he repent? 
Will he act in faith? Peril number two, when you rule yourself, you have no confidence to act in faith. Peril number two, when you rule yourself, you have no confidence to act in faith. Again, for those who trust in the Lord, there is always confidence to act in faith. Always. Because as strong as the Lord is, so goes our hope. As strong as the Lord is, so goes our hope. But when you rule yourself, well, then your future is all dependent upon you, and then you're severely in trouble here. And we see that this is what Saul does. What's amazing here is that Jonathan is still being uplifted here. You remember Jonathan who brought that first victory here? Here he is again at the beginning of chapter 14 acting in ways the king should have acted. He takes initiative again and leads another attack. Look there in 14.1. One day, right, remember, right, Saul's probably so struck with fear. Who knows what's going to happen? One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. We don't know why he told his, why he did not tell his father. Most likely because he assumed that Saul wouldn't listen to him or that he would be struck with fear. If that's your child, you might want to go check on that child. (laughs) Um, So he says, come, let us go over to the Philistines on the other side. What does Saul do there in verse 2? What does Saul do? He's back at the pomegranate cave. Verse 2, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave, or as you see there in your footnotes, it could read under the pomegranate tree. Either way, he's hiding out in a cave like all the other fearful Israelites, or he's hanging out eating his fruits. Like, what's going on? Because he's supposed to be on the battle scene, just as God said he was supposed to be. It definitely doesn't seem like he's being strong and courageous. And then what happens in 4 to 23, it's this marvelous story about uh, you know, valor and acting in faith. Wish we had time. One, maybe one day we'll have uh, time to just walk through it in a slower fashion. But Jonathan and his armor bearer, right, two guys, they're going up against this, this uh, other garrison here, and they strategize to sneak up on the Philistine garrison, uh, which apparently, according to commentators, required some, like, serious rock climbing. So you can imagine this is like Mission Impossible. you got two guys, Jonathan, his armor bearer, the son of the king. You know, he's acting in valor. And then Jonathan comes up with his plan. Look there, 14 verses 8 to 10 14 8 to 10 jonathan says to his armor bearer behold we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them right and we're going to pop up verse 9 if they say to us wait until we come to you then we'll stand in our place and we will not go up to them like not good we'll just stay where we are but if they say kind of like in pride come up to us then then we will go up For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So they're saying like, hey, like we see you, you come up here, we're going to teach you something. Then they say, yeah, we're going to go ahead and do it. Like it's totally counterintuitive what's going on here. But what's highlighted in this account is Jonathan's faith, his confidence in God, Yahweh, the Lord. And there's there's a huge contrast here between Jonathan and then Saul. Jonathan trusts in God. And acts in faith. Verses 6, 10, and 12. Look there at 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or a few. Now that detail there of this uncircumcised, he's not just pointing out what's going on in their bodies. 
there, that term symbolized those who stood against the Lord. You got to know that. It's going to come up back again in Goliath. But that's what he means here, right? Jonathan's like looking at this army. He's like thousands or however big this garrison was. Presumably it was smaller than that. He actually kills at least 20 people down there in 14. So let's assume it's just 20 people, right? But nevertheless, they're, they're outnumbered. He looks at these 20 and he was like, the Lord can do this. He may do it. If we act, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord for, from saving by many or a few. And then similar things are said in 10. Uh, once again, the Lord has given them into our hands. And then again in verse 12 at the end there, come up after me for the Lord has given them into our hands, into the hands of Israel. Now he is not naming it and claiming it here. He's not naming it and claiming it. Here the main point here is just that the Lord is going to work. And he does even caveat it, right? In verse 6, he says the Lord may do these things. But nevertheless, he's trusting in the Lord. If you look at Saul, right? He's not doing these things. Again, for Saul, he's not advancing on the Philistines as the Lord commanded him. And then even still, Jonathan and his armor bearer are outnumbered, right? As we remember that, they are outnumbered. Well, what did Saul do when he was outnumbered? He was fearful because his confidence depended upon himself and not God. You see the resolution there in 13 to 15. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field and among the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became very it became a very great panic. There with this earthquake, we're supposed to think that the Lord intervened miraculously. He answered the prayer, or he answered them, and he delivered them. Again, Saul is hanging back at the pomegranate tree. Saul is not advancing. Saul is fearing. And to make matters worse, after he had rejected the word of the Lord, notice there in verses 2 and 3, who he is with. Go ahead and look there. Who is he with? Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600, including, look at this emphasis there, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Now, that's a whole lot of words. Just know that Eli was of a cursed line of priests by then. Here's Saul, right? He's fearful. He doesn't really know what to do. He's not taking the initiative. He rejects the word of the Lord, takes matter into his own hands. And so after Saul leaves, he says, well, let me just go ahead and consult with this cursed line of priests. You see, there's such great dysfunction. You just look at what's going on with Saul and the people that he has around him. You have prophet rejected, king doing the rejecting, priest cursed. Something's going on with Saul here. It's not good for him. It is not good regarding the resolution just like the last battle Saul he does participate but he arrives kind of like lagging behind verses 16 to 20 tell us it's only after the Philistines are weakened that Saul joins the battle with Saul appearing to think that the people of God's future depends on themselves or how strong the Philistines are no wonder he's not doing what God wants him to do. 
he has no confidence to act in faith. Now, historically, if you look there in 47 to 52, if you go scan there, you'll see that he was, in fact, known for some military victories. But these chapters speak to his character, right? Not his military victories. These chapters speak to his character. 13 to 15 comes up with a darker portrait of Saul's soul. He's seen as fearful, insecure, and a, to be a proud king. And we think, man, if he would only listen, obey the Lord, because as strong as the Lord is, so goes the hopes of the people. If hope is as strong as Saul, then there is no hope. You guys know what this is like, right? If our hope depended finally on us, then when the situation looks too big for us, of course we're going to fear and get paralyzed. Of course we're going to go run in a hole. Also, if the situation before us is no problem, then we say, right, I got this, whatever, I don't need God. We're cocky and proud, right? We assert ourselves too rashly. Well, that's Saul as well. And you see that he acts rashly in chapter 14, verses 24 to 46. He's puffed up from this military victory. I won't go into detail here just because of time, but in short, you know, after the Lord wins the victory, for some reason, if you just go ahead and look there in 24, Right in 23, it says, the Lord saved the day. And then in 24, you got the men of Israel have been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. And I am avenged on my enemies. Like somehow, Saul all of a sudden is like confident again. Like he, like he is when he's blowing the horn. Here he's like, I'm going to make a vow and pursue the enemy all the way until death. And he seems more to be siding with himself than with God. In short, in short, this rash act here, this rash oath, it jeopardizes the people physically. Uh, they're in danger, right? He, he says, no one should eat until my, all of my enemies are dead. Jonathan comes along, he sees that there's honey, and he doesn't know about this oath, and he takes some. All of a sudden, Jonathan's life is in danger. Not only that, though, but spiritually, the people, they're so starving. After they go and defeat another garrison of the Philistines, they go and raid all the spoils, and they, they break God's law and the law of Moses, and they eat the animals with the blood inside. They sin against God, right? So they're, they're being jeopardized spiritually. And the leader, the irony of this whole thing by the end of it here is that the leader who's supposed to lead God's people need to be led by the people themselves. If you look there at 43 and following, right? Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. He finds out that Jonathan had sinned. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. He's so faithful. He's willing to die, even though uh, by all accounts, by the end of this account, it's a silly oath. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also, more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Right? He's going to execute his own son, the very one who's acting in faith. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. You see there that he has to rely on the people to be led himself. And his, leader, his leadership is just going up in flames here. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. He's going to kill the only one who is living according to faith. But by God's grace, the people ransom him somehow. He has no biblical vision. He has no biblical vision with which to assess his situation. 
and therefore he doesn't know how to act. In the situations, friends, that we find ourselves in, God's people are to interpret our lives with God's vision for the situation, regardless of how we're feeling. How does God want me, we are to ask, how does God want me to understand my situation in light of what he's revealed about himself and about Christ and about me as I live in this fallen world? It's when we assess our situations with biblical vision, that is God's vision, it's then that we come up with a Christ-exalting strategy for living. It's when we assess our situation with God's vision, according to the word, that we can come to a Christ-exalting strategy for living. And when we have that, then we can act in faith. If we don't have God's vision for our lives, then forget it. How in the world are we going to come up with a biblical strategy for living? How are we going to act in faith? The answer is we can't. Seeking God's wisdom is seeking God's assessment of our situation and then bringing God's wisdom to the situation so that we can go on and honor Jesus Christ, trusting in God, acting in faithfulness. Right? This should be a mark of Christians. It should be a mark of every Christian here. If we, we want to see the situation, go ahead and write this down. Situation that we're in. Well, in the situation, we want God's vision. We want God's vision. That's the second thing. One situation, second, God's vision. Third, according to the word, we, ha- we, we know biblical strategies. Biblical strategies. Really what this is is just faithful living, righteous living in a way that honors God. And then number four, therefore we can act with courage and faith. Then we can act with courage and faith, trusting that what God has revealed here is the best thing to do. Now, when I talk about God's vision in your situation, friends, I'm not talking about all the things that Christ has not revealed about your lives. I'm not talking about how far up the chain of command you're dreaming and what's God's vision for me there and what are the strategies that God's telling me to move up the role there. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, right, what kind of job you might land next year or who you're going to marry or where you're going to be at retirement financially. I'm talking about what God's vision is for you in the things that he has already revealed, that he has already revealed. What does it look like for you, friend, mother? Today's Mother's Day. For you to be a faithful mother right here, right now. And a faithful Christian, Christian mother right here, right now. For children, what does it mean for you to be a faithful child, if you believe in Jesus, faithful child uh, trusting in Jesus and a child who obeys your parents? I'm talking about the things that God has revealed. It's all right here in terms of knowing the will of God and God's vision. Sometimes, you know, we wrongly over focus on the things that God has not revealed to the neglect of everything that God has revealed right here. We're just talking about basic holy living in no matter the situation you are in, whether you are in difficulty or a period in a time of joy. Again, we're talking about Christ's vision for your life that he has already revealed. Friends, do you know what God desires of you right now? For Saul, it was, Saul, love me, trust me, obey me, leave the results to me. For us, it's very much the same. Are we as Christians going to love God, trust him now, and obey, regardless of all the things we don't necessarily know? That's faithful living. That's living by faith and not by sight. What are the perils of self-rule? Number one, we rely on our own wisdom and not God's. Number two, 
We have no confidence to act in faith. And number three, we don't please God. We don't please God. Sadly, Saul does not please God. In fact, in chapter 15, his sins just really seem to climax here. As the chapter opens, look there at 15.1, we have Samuel addressing Saul again. Last we knew, right, Saul has left. The word of God has left. Here, Samuel's addressing Saul again. We have every reason to think that this is not going to end well based on what we've already seen. The prophet of God, that is Samuel, right, he knows exactly what God wants him to do. And Samuel knows exactly what Saul is to do. So he says there in verse 1, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now listen, therefore, to the words of the Lord. This is a huge reminder of the fact that the king is to rule underneath the ultimate ruler, underneath the authority of God. Right? He's saying, the Lord sent me to you. Listen to him. Listen to him. You look there in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. If you're visiting with us today, I recognize that some of these verses are, in fact, hard to read. Like, what in the world is going on right there? What's going on here is that God is moving to judge the Amalekites for what they did against God and his people back in the Exodus. There, God was delivering his people out of slavery to Egypt and bringing them into the land that he had promised them. But what had happened there is Amalek just sees this, this weak nation of Israel and says, it's time to destroy them. And he goes and pursues Israel. And he even says in Deuteronomy that the, the sort of the folks who were at the end of the tale as they were walking through the desert, it's them that they cut off and destroyed. And so this destruction that was brought about by Amalek and the Amalekites, God's promises there in Exodus, he's going to blot them from the, from the earth. Their name will not be remembered as great. That's what God's doing right here. He waited patiently all these years. And at this point in time, the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of armies, you can think, he himself is carrying out divine judgment. That's what we have to think here when we come to this section. That the destruction that Amalek so desired, God is giving them over to the very same. The destruction that they wanted to see happen to Israel, God says, so you will have it yourself. What was promised in Exodus, God moves to fulfill in 1 Samuel 15, God himself was moving through the Israelites to judge and carry out vengeance on the Amalekites. Now, some people want to respond, okay? Some people want to respond, but you Christians, you know, you and your God, you think that you're better because of what you do? Like, as if we don't think that we deserve judgment, like you guys are beyond judgment because you believe in Jesus and things like that. Well, friends, actually, no, that's so far from the truth. Did you know that just as God used Israel to judge the Amalekites, so God would use other nations to judge the Israelites? Certainly not to the extent here, not to the degree, but judgment nevertheless. It's the very reason why they go into exile with the Babylonians, for example. As Christians, we believe that God has every right to judge. In fact, he must judge if he is to be just, right? We know this in our own land. We so desire some notion of justice. And it's good and right for a crime to be judged and for criminals to be punished. 
Friends, God is the highest authority there is. And God has the right to do this to every single one of us because we have all opposed God. Maybe not with metal swords and things like this, but the Bible says we have all rebelled against our creator. God had made us to be in a relationship with him, but we rebelled against him. The Bible says that even we are hostile to God. We'd rather just kick him off the throne and and leave for ourselves. It's the very nature of self-rule and sin. That's all of us, friends. We deserved in that very moment, in every moment, God's judgment according to his justice and eternal righteousness. We, friends, we don't, as Christians, we don't, we don't think we deserve anything less than to be devoted to destruction ourselves for having sinned against God. We don't think that we are inherently better or more worthy than anyone else because of our morality or, you know, a set of beliefs that we hold to. Absolutely not. What causes the Christian to escape such judgment is that God in his mercy has held back his judging hand upon us who rightly deserved it as we deserved hell even and instead he places it on Jesus Christ who bore the wrath that we deserve that's the only reason why we escape judgment because of God's grace and his love for us because he is full he is rich in grace full of mercy he holds back his judgment on his people it's not because of anything we have done but all because of God salvation is not dependent upon us But our hope and security is all dependent upon God and his love. This is Christ who bore our punishment. This is why God sent Christ to live the perfect life we should have but didn't and to die the death that we deserved as Christ went to the cross to bear the punishment that we deserved. So we come to this passage like as a Christian, right? Speaking to you non-Christians, if you're trying to wrestle with this, what is he talking about here in this war, this particular war, which frankly doesn't happen very often. Um, devoting everything to destruction, we come to this passage realizing that God has all authority. But we also come to this passage realizing that God is gracious. He is merciful. He's steadfast in his love. And he offers forgiveness to all who would repent of their sins and believe. He wants to spare. Friends, listen to this. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Praise the Lord. He is that kind of God. Not only is he judge, but he is gracious and merciful. And we see those qualities, those characteristics so evidenced on the cross as he actually does judge sin just on Jesus, but lets us free according to his mercy and grace. So friends, this this welcome, this mercy and grace is for you. If you would turn from your sins and believe upon him, you will be saved, forgiven of your sins, united to God, where God would lead you as savior in relation to the account god's word is clear for saul so what happens saul musters his army as well as others and there in verse 7 you see saul defeated the amalekites and drove them out you think yay he listened but he didn't you look there in verse 8 and he took agag the king of the amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. You see the problem. They think it's all about them. So they come up with their own law. 
It's not about God. You look there at verse 10. What happens? The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. There he's genuinely sorrowful over sin. Genuinely sorrowful. Just as it says in Genesis chapter 6, 6, he was grieved. Because the, all, because the whole entire world, all of man's heart was, was evil continually. And so God is grieved over Saul's sin and our sin. Saul doesn't get it. And the scene is kind of astounding in a really bad way and even like a tragic comedy way. I mean, if you look there at, at, after, um, in the middle of 11, and Samuel was angry, right? And he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told, and it was told Samuel... Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went, went down to Gilgal. Isn't that, a, isn't that a funny scene there? There's Saul, right, setting up his monument for himself, and Samuel has to come, look there in verse 13, and he says to Saul, right, or sorry, Saul says to Samuel, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And just a moment a while ago, he was saying, up a little higher with my statue, up a little to the left and to the right so that I would get the glory. And he says, blessed be you, Samuel, I have, I have done what the Lord has commanded me. Apparently, Saul sounds like Thor a little bit. He's building a monument to himself. This is almost dismissive in verse 11. I have performed the commandment. You can imagine Samuel. He's sitting there thinking like, I hear the sheep. I hear the cows. He has to say to him, stop there in verse 16. Stop. He says uh, in a verse above, right? What, is the, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? He's, he's flabbergasted. I hear everything. Stop, verse 16. I will tell you again what the Lord has told me. Verse 18, the Lord anointed you as king. He sent you as representative of the Lord on a mission to devote to destruction the Amalekites. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And look what he says in 20 and 21. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Somehow, somehow he cannot obey all the way and still think he has obeyed. Obviously, Saul, in his own wisdom, must have a different understanding of what God requires, of what God means by obedience. You know what the passage says drove him to this disobedience specifically? We get to the why question. I mean, Saul's a very complicated character, just like we all are, but specifically it's named here. He tells us there in 24, finally owning his sin. Look there in 24. Here he's pleading with Samuel, I have sinned. Finally, after all of these blunders, finally he owns his sin. I have sinned for I transgress the commandment of the Lord and your words. Why? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. That's why he says there in 21, look there in 21, I took Agag, but the people, the people, they took the spoil to supposedly sacrifice to the Lord. We aren't told why he spares Agag, but we are certainly told why he let the other people take the spoils. Seems like he's concerned more with his own rule than the Lord's. Scan verses 24 to 30, 31. Scan there. We see this idea of fear again. Saul begs Samuel to remain with him as king. Remain with me, kind of as a sign of God's approval that he would indeed be king. 
After begging Saul the first time, Saul tries a second time, grabs his robe, and, and Samuel's robe tears. And what does he say? He says there, no, God is going to strip the kingdom for you. Verse 30, you see Saul's concern. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. You see how his sin climaxes here. He rejects the word of the Lord, taking matters into his own hands. He doesn't act in faith, but acts rashly. Here he obeys partially, and he does not please the Lord. The judgment there in 1314, the judgment there in 1314 is affirmed in verse 28 in, in chapter 15. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. Friends, you, you, at least in this section, you know what Saul does not understand? Look at verse 22. You look at the wisdom that he does not have. He thinks that he can just go about doing the things that God has commanded without a heart for God and everything's going to be okay. But friends, that doesn't work. Look there in 22. Has the Lord a great, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion, that is turning away from God, is as the sin of divination, paganism. And presumption, presuming you know better than God, is as the iniquity as idolatry. Friends, this whole back and forth between Samuel and Saul is just baffling. You have not obeyed. I have obeyed. You have not obeyed. I have obeyed. But friends, you realize that we are just like Saul, aren't we? Just like Saul. In our own wisdom, we act doing all sorts of things thinking that they're going to gain us a little bit of more favor from God, maybe coming to church, because we know that God says in Hebrews 10 that we are to gather with his people, and so we come to church. We read the word and pray. We even schedule it in every single one of our days. We give of our offerings, and we even strive to be holy. We know that God says you should be pure, and so we say, okay, we're not going to watch pornography. We're not going to have sex before marriage. We do all of these different types of things coldly at times, thinking that that is true obedience. But friends, God's not after cold obedience. Isn't that clear? When he says there, obedience, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. When he's thinking about obedience here, he's thinking about heart obedience, an obedience that comes from the heart. But cold obedience, trying to earn God's favor, is not true obedience. And in fact, leads one to hell if there is a rejection of God. God is after those who share his very own heart. It's a major thing that we never really quite see with Saul. It's God's word is dispensable. It's negotiable to Saul. He'd much rather rule himself than have God rule over him, which is why God judges Saul. Once again, let's go read that again. Chapter 13, verse 13, right there in the middle. 13, 13, right there in the middle. What is the judgment? You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Listen to this. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded of you. You know what he's talking about? In the immediate, we know that he's talking about David. 
David in Acts chapter 13 is specifically called a man after God's own heart. But even with David and all of his greatness, he still sinned some very great sins. But friends, even David points us to Jesus, who is king of kings. That's his title in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. The reality is we are all just like Saul, sinners to the core, needing to be led because we can't lead ourselves, needing to be saved because we can't save ourselves. This is where we are pointed to Jesus Christ, the one who rules and reigns like only he can, the one who saves us. He is the ruler we need because he is the one who perfectly did what God desired and shared the exact same heart as God. How did he do that? Because he is the very son of God, the eternal son of God come to save. Whatever God's will is, that is Christ's will. So as we look to Saul and even King David and especially our very own selves, thank God for Christ, the king, the true king who shares God's very own heart. Thank God he leads us because we can't lead ourselves. Thank God he sent Christ to be our king, to sit on the throne so that we wouldn't have to rule over ourselves because all that leads to is peril. And thank God, as we read earlier from the Gospel of Luke, Thank God for his righteousness as he is the one who obeys all the commands of God so that all who repent of their sins and believe will be counted righteous citizens of his kingdom, entrusting ourselves to Christ all by faith. We are saved and delivered. As we conclude here, we see that God is so good in giving us Christ. Even though his people rejected him as king and opted for an earthly king, he still used that even to bring about Christ the King for, his, for the good of his people. Given Christ has come, friends, aren't we all encouraged to submit to his reign? We don't have to sin like Saul did and like, like we do. We don't have to insist on our self-rule, which of course is just rebellion against God. We are meant to live under God and to trust in his character and in his wisdom. And when that happens, we can trust him to know how to act in faith and with confidence. And therefore, in Jesus Christ, please the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge, we confess the so many different times that we strive to lead ourselves and to deliver ourselves and to even save ourselves. But Lord, there is such great rest in entrusting ourselves to Christ, the true King, the ruler of all. We confess too that at times we doubt the leadership of the King, Christ's wisdom, Christ's knowledge, Christ's goodness. At times, maybe we are even suspicious of Christ, your shepherding of us. But Lord, we pray that you would rebuke us and remind us with your great love and your wisdom and knowledge that you are so worthy to be trusted and just as all of so many different characters in the Bible show us. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would indeed know that you are a good leader and a good shepherd, and therefore we would be satisfied. Satisfy us, we pray, 
according to your steadfast love. Help us trust in you all the days of our lives. So long as you give them, we pray, Lord, that we would be living to the praise of your glory so that your name would be honored. And Lord, where we know that we sin, we pray, Lord, that you would indeed forgive us for these things. We thank you for your righteousness that you credit to us. We thank you, Lord, that we are righteous in your sight, all because of the work that you did and accomplished on the cross. In your great name we pray these things. Amen.